Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. That's for later. All right, so we are in a brand new series today called This Changes Everything. And my name is Josh Tandy, if we haven't met. Uh, but this is the thing about this series, is that as soon as you hear that, you might have heard me saying that in like the marketing infomercial voice. It's just very similar to the movie trailer voice, like this in a world or whatever it is, right? Or like the monster truck rally guy, like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It's kind of like that, right? But this changes everything is a phrase that gets thrown around. Now, maybe we see this with, with products, with services, with apps, and they're going to talk about how this is going to revolutionize a space, that this is going to be the thing that makes the world a better place. All right, so one of the things I love about this time is that we have this great online opportunity where we can be a little bit more uh, engaging and interacting. And so at home, if you're, if you're uh, watching along with us, or even if you're here in the room and you're participating in the chat with us, I would love for you to list out, to say the thing that you either bought that was kind of infomercially, or the thing that you were watching and you thought, man, I, I could use this. Like by the time the commercial was done and they'd said the phone number eight times, you were thinking, maybe I do need those katana knives. Maybe I do need that shake weight. Maybe I do need man, I get so cold and I want to be able to be on my phone. I need that Snuggie, right? You need that, right? Because usually those infomercials, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, used to be when you were up late and you couldn't sleep and you were channel surfing or whatever, you weren't watching Netflix. You were just trying to find something to watch. And there would be these commercials. That, that was the cheapest time that the, uh, the advertisers could give you. And so they were selling these products. And maybe it would be like this. It would be like this, this, this black and white picture of a kitchen and there would be this voiceover, and it says, are you tired of using two knives to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Well, our Kitchen Katana 9000 will revolutionize your lunch experience with our state-of-the-art polymer, and no one knows what a polymer is, but they would always say that, right? With our state-of-the-art polymer, it will spread the peanut butter and remove greenhouse gases, because they're always making these weird claims that aren't connected, right? And this is going to make the world a better place. Call now for your very own Kitchen Katana 9000. This changes everything. Because whether it's an infomercial or a marketing ploy or anything like that, there's these moments where we hope this really is going to change everything. We hope that the job is going to change things for us, right? We hope that the, the college decision, we hope that the relationship, the right guy, the right girl... We say if we could just achieve this or that, if we could just lose X amount of pounds, that that will change everything. But even if we get that something, there's this sense of emptiness, right? There's this sense that we are still missing out. Henry David Thoreau has this famous quote that's honestly pretty depressing, but I think pretty accurate. He says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I think we have a desperation for three things. I think we have a desperation for love. doesn't matter how many times you've been dumped. doesn't matter if, if you're divorced or not. We, we always are seeking out love. I, I think the second thing we're always looking for that we're desperate for is we are desperate for purpose. Uh, we want to know that we've made a difference in the world. Things like legacy. Things like that we're, we're changing things around us. And we're looking for meaning. We're looking to try to make sense of a chaotic and frustrating and dark world. We want love. 
We want purpose and we want meaning. Now, who's, who's going to disagree with that? Who's going to say, you know, I don't need any love from other people? Who's going to honestly say, I don't need purpose? None of you are going to say that I don't have any questions about the world or about how things work. We all are looking for love. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. And when we ask these questions, people like me, Christians and pastors, I think we fall into that marketing infomercial trap. And we try to give the best pitch we can and say, if you would just follow Jesus, if you would just pray a prayer, if you would just get baptized, if you would just believe, if you just have faith, then that changes everything. It's going to make the world a better place. You're going to revolutionize your whole experience because this changes everything. But there's those moments that come, that are on our horizons, where no matter what we've done in terms of following Jesus, there are those moments of quiet desperation. Those moments of pain, of disappointment, of hurt. Those moments where we're seeking love, where we're seeking purpose, we're seeking meaning. Now let me offer what I think is a kind of a radical reason why this exists. Why that we want these things, yet we believe this about Jesus, or we have heard this about Jesus, that Jesus is going to solve this want. Why are we still experiencing this? I, I think that it might boil down to that maybe we're believing something that Jesus didn't teach. Maybe we're believing something that Jesus didn't really offer. Maybe we're buying into something that's not what Jesus was about. Let me explain. I think there are a whole bunch of us at one time or another or currently have fallen into what I call in and out Christianity. Not, not in and out burger. I'm sure they're great. I've never had it. I'm not, I don't know, I've never been out there. I'm not so privileged or blessed to be at in and out burger and order the weird secret menu, whatever they have, right? I'm fine with McDonald's. I'm a McDonald's guy. That's who I am, all right? So there you go. But the in and out Christianity is something different. It's, it's different, okay? There's a diagram I want to put up on the screen. And this in and out version of Christianity is explained by this. Now, sociologists, people with degrees and stuff, will call this a bounded set, okay? A bounded set means there's a boundary, there's a line. There's people that are in, there's people that are out. A triangle is a triangle, right? A square can't be a triangle, a circle can't be a triangle. There are clearly defined parameters of what a triangle is and is not. And we think of faith in an in or out sense of the word. So the second diagram, notice that there is a boundary. Now there's a boundary here that we would access faith, that we would go to. You have to cross a literal line to get to there. So maybe for you, this has to do with whether or not you would answer one of those public surveys, right? One of those public opinion polls, like, do you believe in God? Do you consider yourself a Christian? Maybe that's the boundary. For some, you have to have some sort of personal experience where you have said yes to Jesus. You prayed a prayer. You went forward at an altar call or you had an experience in youth group or at camp. You say, I'm a Christian now. I mean, there's others that would say you have to be baptized. You have to go through certain ordinances and activities within a church. You have to become a member of a church. You have to be part of that in order to be in and you have to get in there because ultimately getting in is about whether or not you get into heaven. And so then diagram three, if we have an in-group, we have an out-group. And the whole goal, the whole mission is to get the out-group into the in-group. And the in-group, therefore, once you're in, you get to go to heaven and the rest doesn't really matter. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of extra at best. 
and the out-group is wrong, and the in-group is right. Now, if you buy into this, this in-and-out Christianity, the first thing that we need to understand is whether or not we are in or we are out. We have to understand whether or not we are in or we are out. And when we say we are in, if you have bought into this bounded set, this in or out Christianity, you would say, I'm going to heaven. And I would agree with you. And that is a wonderful and incredibly important thing. But is that what Jesus was driving at? Is that what Jesus was trying to communicate? Is that what Jesus was trying to accomplish, boiling it down to this one I believe that when we look at this in or out Christianity, when we examine it a little more, when we look at the gospel, what Jesus said, did, what he did at the cross, what he did at the empty tomb, all encompass this idea of the gospel, that, that this love of God was shown in Jesus, and it opened us up, allowed us to connect with God. This gospel message, we examine it, I think we see the message that Jesus has, this good news, is that heaven after you die is, yes, an incredible gift, but you don't have to wait for the inconvenience of death. Heaven can start now. There's one of, this, one of these followers of Jesus. He was kind of in the second generation of followers of Jesus. He was a guy named Mark. We know him as Mark. And he was kind of a disciple of Peter. He followed Peter around, and he retold and wrote down the stories that Peter would tell, so that that, this became the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, notice it's right there at the start, he quotes Jesus as saying this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So when Jesus declares that the kingdom of God has come near, he is telling us that there is a way of life that can be lived right now that is eternal. A way of eternity that can be lived out now. A quality of life that is heaven on earth, a life lived in the kingdom of God. See, in this gospel, you can live out the kingdom now and for eternity. Now, when I was first kind of wrapping my head around this, when I was first exposed to this idea, it was kind of almost like a second conversion for me. It was. It was kind of a second conversion for me because a conversion implies that you are leaving something behind and moving into something else, right? And leaving things behind is really, really hard. I was the guy who grew up in an incredible church, grew up in an incredible family, and the main goal of faith was fire insurance. That's not crass, that's not belittling, but that's what it was. We don't want Josh to go to hell, so we need to make sure Josh has faith so he goes to heaven. Admirable. I believe that is a true sentiment. That is something that Jesus is about, but that's where it stopped, and that's where I was missing out. And so the second conversion, this was disruptive, this was hard to take in, and I had to go back, and you look at scriptures, you look at what Jesus says, and it seems pretty clear then. It was, it was this eye-opening moment. You know, this eye-opening moment where I said, how important heaven is, but maybe there's more to this. This idea of kingdom mindset, this idea of a kingdom of God coming near, what does that mean for the here and the now? See, I think up until that point, following Jesus was just about saying a prayer for me, just about getting baptized for me, and then like avoiding R-rated movies and, and being a somewhat good person, right? That sounds like a pretty dull life. I don't think Jesus gave his life for us so that we can just be good little boys and girls. 
So what does this look like? What does this idea of kingdom even mean? I think it would be helpful if you kind of kind of broke it down at the most base level. All of us have a kingdom. All of us have an area of life where we have an influence and authority. And if you're a parent, that's constantly brought into question. But all of us have a place where we have authority and influence, right? It may just be over ourselves, but all of us, whether it's work, home, relationships, we all have some influence where what we want usually happens so think of it this way god's kingdom is the ways in which god gets what god wants and when jesus says the kingdom of god is not something to be achieved something you have to climb a ladder to it is here and now it is near it is accessible this is different this is new so what does it look like the first 300 years the first three centuries of christianity from year zero to year 300. Christians were the most persecuted group, religious group on the planet. In this time, they had no authority, they had no power, they had no structure. They were started by this Jesus. He goes to the cross, he walks out of the grave alive. Some 40 days later, he ascends to heaven and he leaves it in charge, particularly to 12, at this point now, 11 broken disciples. And probably a few hundred, they're still with Jesus. And in 300 years, the gospel will spread, will explode, the church will grow incredibly. That in that fourth century, the Roman Empire will co-opt Christianity for their own means. And Christianity will somehow kind of almost become like the accepted, expected faith of the powerful. But that begs the question, how did they get there? In those first 300 years, it doesn't make sense why Christianity would spread this way. And we would say as believers, well, that's God's spirit working through this. But then let's look at the early church. Let's look at history and say, what did they do? These are people who believe the kingdom was near, the kingdom was being lived out. What did they do? There's this his church historian named Larry Hurtado out of Baylor, and he, and he wrote a book about, uh, I think it's, it was called Why, why, no one, why, why, no one, like, why Christianity Shouldn't Have Survived, or, or something like that. And he looked at this first three centuries, and he talked about the big five aspects of the early church, and he de- de- defined them as this. He said there are five big things that were countercultural today. The first one is the early church was multi-ethnic. They crossed racial and ethnic bounds with the gospel. They did not discriminate and taught that all were equal regardless of where you're born or what gender you were. It it taught that that this was not about being part of a right group that to determine power or status. And that was what the larger culture did. If you were part of this right group, that was a leg up in society. The second thing he talked about was that they were oriented towards the poor. Culturally at that time, wealth was a sign that the gods were pleased with you, that you were doing right, that that the gods were rewarding you. But Christians were known for their hospitality, for the generosity, and the the result was that the faith spread first to the poor and the marginalized. The third thing he said is that they had this incredible sanctity of life ethic. They were so pro-life in a totality. Abortion was rare and, and really, really dangerous at this point. So that wasn't what the issue was. But infanticide was a huge epidemic. Infanticide was a huge issue. Unwanted children, usually girls, or usually babies born to a family that couldn't support this child economically, would leave a child out in the elements or at the garbage heap. 
Christians were known. They got this reputation that they would be the ones who would watch and would bring in those children. Christians were the ones who were known to take care of the sick and the dying at the end of life. Christians had this incredible priority that life matters. The fourth thing that we see that Hurtado talks about in his book is that there was this New Testament sexual ethic. It wasn't a traditional sexual ethic because whose tradition? It wasn't an Old Testament sexual ethic because then you've got polygamy and all sorts of other odd things that don't align with the gospel. But you have a New Testament sexual ethic. In Roman culture, men of higher social standing were not just allowed, they were expected that they would have multiple partners. And it would be because of lust, obviously, but it would also be a power move that they would, they would seek out. They were predators towards those of lower social standing. And then you have Christians over here who are advocating for lifelong marriages that were monogamous, that were faithful. And this went against the grain. The fifth thing that, that he talks about in his book is how conciliatory, conciliatory, I knew I'd get that word wrong, Heidi. She's laughing at me up here. And you're just being nice but not laughing at first right there. They had this idea, this bent towards forgiveness. In an honor culture like the Roman Empire and the Greco-Roman world, forgiveness was seen as a weakness. If you're offering forgiveness, that must mean you are weak, that you understand that you were in the wrong. Opponents must be defeated. Vengeance must be exacted. It was odd for someone to lead with forgiveness, with civility. And so if you look at those five, leave that list up there. Let's think about it from our paradigm. Let's think about it this way. Let's say that, that multi-ethnic stuff, well, that, that might be questions of race, right? Maybe questions of racial justice, the orient of the poor. This could be issues of economy and, and economic justice. Sanctity of life, we're talking about pro-life, a, a, a sexual ethic. You're talking about a high standard, right? Like no sex before marriage, a, a man and a woman, lifelong marriages, these sorts of things. And then that fifth one's kind of weird, isn't it? And depending on who you vote for, who you plan to vote for, you might get real excited about two of those. You might get real, real excited about two of those. And I think we can all agree, we look at that fifth one and we look at our, our leaders, or those, those in influence, those in public, whether it be business, politics, whatever. There's not a lot of civility. There's not a lot of bent towards forgiveness, right? We wish there was. And so sometimes I think that we can think that we just have to like find a... a, a spongy middle middle ground well the early church they were countercultural as they followed jesus they did things that shatter paradigms then and now they were doing this not because they thought this was the best way to live they did this not as a way of saying this is the best governing system or this is the best way to to advance my own interests they did to say this is what the kingdom of god looks like and it was countercultural and it shattered things they lived out the kingdom. These followers of Jesus were highly persecuted. They were not pushovers. They didn't just roll over. They sought out something countercultural. And here's what I get excited about. Jesus didn't just offer us a way to, to go to heaven after this life is over. He offers us so much more. Jesus came to bring up there, down here. His message wasn't just about getting us into heaven, but about getting heaven into us. He called us to eternal life then and now. So how do we find this life? To be very simple and very clear, Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus doesn't offer us an in-and-out Christianity where if you check the box, you say the prayer, you do the thing, you cross that line, you get your ticket to heaven, and you're good. No, Jesus offers himself as a way for eternity, but a way for life here and now. Look at this diagram. We'll go back to our diagrams here. We'll just think of it this way. This in-and-out mentality is just wrong. This in-and-out mentality is not gospel. This in-and-out mentality is not what Jesus is offering us. Instead, we have more, more what like sociologists call a centered set. This next diagram here, we see this, that it's all built around the center thing. We, we use language here at Movement. We say this is the hill we're dying on, right? We want everyone to come to this one place. We're not going to fight over other things. As long as we are all moving towards Jesus, these secondary issues, we believe God is working out and working in us in that process. We believe that if we have a table mentality, uh, worship in the New Testament is built around the table, built around communion, that, that this is the climactic moment, that everyone comes to the table to remember what Jesus has done. If we can all keep coming to the table, and we keep trusting that God is at work, and we keep allowing God to work through us, through his spirit, and through the teachings of Jesus, then I think we're going to get somewhere. And so as long as we're moving forward, and we see this in the next diagram, it's very artistic, but in this next diagram, we see as long as we're moving towards that center point, we don't need to worry about boundaries. Because if we are all, all moving towards Jesus, if we are all moving towards the gospel, then boundaries don't really matter. Because Jesus is doing the work of transformation. Jesus is doing the work of forgiveness. Jesus is doing the work of this big biblical word called sanctification, which basically means we become more like the person God has created us to be. Think of it this way. It was a step. Maybe it was a big deal for you that day you joined the gym. Maybe it was a huge deal for you you went to your first AA meeting. Maybe for you it was a huge day. It was a huge day when you had your first kid or you got married. You had these huge, big moments where you crossed a line. You went from, hey, I'm not a dad to now I am a dad. You went from single to being a husband. You went from, I am not sober to now I'm walking towards that. You went from, I'm doing nothing for my health, to at least I'm starting. But look, think about this. If that's all we focus on, if that is success for us, then we're going to join and let that card, that membership card, go to waste in the back of our wallet and never get used. We're going to join, we're going to start, but we're never going to see it through. We're never going to experience transformation. If it, all it is about crossing a line, then does that really matter? The day your kid was born, did that make you a good father or a good mother. The day you were married, as important as it is, as, as much as you could say the things right, that you are putting this in front of God, you could do all those right things, does that make you a good husband, a good wife? As long as we are moving towards this goal, a follower of Jesus is focused on Jesus, not the boundary lines of static religion. A follower wants to get close to Jesus every day and invigorates and challenges the follower. Hear this, a follower of Jesus is someone whose ultimate goal is to always be taking another step towards Jesus. Hear that again. A follower of Jesus is someone whose ultimate goal is to always be taking another step towards Jesus. Now hear this, this isn't about you earning, achieving something better, or earning, achieving more of Jesus, more love, more acceptance, what have you. This is this understanding that we are accepted, we are part of the family, we are in, 
Heaven is secured, but what about now? And a follower of Jesus is always taking steps in that direction, and it's not about coming up with really corny and cheesy alternatives to four-letter words. It's not about just saying, hey, I'm not watching that movie or that show. It's not about just saying, I'm going to make sure I've crossed the right line, I'm in the right group, whether it's in my neighborhood or my friend group or at work or in my politics or what have you. It's not about just crossing a line and checking a box. And here is why this changes everything. As I follow, as I take steps in my thinking, behavior, and life, I become more of a partner. Here's the absurdity of the gospel. Jesus doesn't need us. God doesn't need us, yet through the work of the Spirit, a peace of God resides in all followers of God. A peace of Jesus resides in all followers of Jesus, leading us forward, allowing us to have purpose and meaning, allowing us to find a way for us to be a part of this kingdom work, not because God needs the help, but because God says it is better when more people are part of this new family I'm creating. See, this is why following Jesus is life-giving, while this in-and-out Christianity is not. When we follow Jesus, when things begin to radically change, following Jesus does change everything. There is no problem in human life that following Jesus cannot solve. Yes, that is a cheesy, can feel like a marketing slogan, can feel like this, like this motivational talk, speak, whatever you might think. But I truly believe whatever the issue facing us today, poverty, disease, addiction, racism, hatred, division, whatever it is, whatever the issue we see, I believe that following Jesus speaks to it. There are a ton of problems that technology, that education, that money, that religion will never solve. The politics will never solve. The policies will never solve. I believe that following Jesus, following Jesus does change everything. And so here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to invite you on a journey. Invite you to take some steps with us. Maybe you've realized that that in and out Christianity mindset, that's something that you've lived in. That's the, that's the waters you've been swimming in. And I find myself doing that too, because I'll, I'll, I'll meet somebody or I'll encounter a new idea and I'm thinking, okay, are they on my team or are they on the other team, right? Do, do they agree with me or do they not? And I have to repent of that. I have to back away from that because that is a dangerous way of thinking because there's so much more. Maybe today you're wondering if a life of love, a life of meaning, a life of purpose is really available to you. And I would say, yes, it is. So let me leave you with a challenge. First challenge is this. Come back next week, because we're going to be talking a lot more about this. This is, day, this is week one of a five-week series of this, of this and, and you can join us online or come in person, you catch the podcast, whatever. Like, like we want to continue to talk about this. We want to continue to dive deeper and say, say, once we've said yes to living as a follower of Jesus, then what? And the second thing is to talk about something we have started talking a lot about this year, this idea of pathway. Here at Movement, we say that we want to help people find and follow Jesus, okay? So sometimes it's helpful when we're on a journey to have a map. Pathway is our attempt at a map. It's simple, it's hopefully easy to grasp, and it's something that I think can help. So step one in this pathway is that we just connect. So think of it this way. The first time that you've walked into this building, the first time you've had interaction with Jesus, I'm asking you not to really do anything, 
I think your first step is just to kind of hang around. Hang around and try to meet some people and just see what this community is like. Because the reality is this may not be the church community for you. And that's okay as long as you go and find the church community that is for you, right? But more so than that, the church or whatever, or the different distinctives about that, I would hope that you would connect with Jesus. Have you ever, ever opened up the Bible and said, I'm going to read the Bible, and you start at page one? <laughs> and you say, I'm going cover to cover. Like, God bless you, that's something that, that you can do, but that's a tough thing. You can think about, okay, I've heard all this about religion and like the history of the church. Like, what do I do with this? I would tell you this. Try to connect with Jesus. Try to connect with one aspect of Jesus. If you're new at this or you're coming back to this idea of following Jesus, I would encourage you to start there. What is something that's compelling to you about Jesus? Start there. Start there. Start small. Find a first step. Step two is a, is a step of belief. For those of us who, who are saying yes to Jesus, I think that's an ongoing thing, not because we have, to keep God, uh, we have to keep God happy, but because we need to continue to push ourselves. We need to kind of orient ourselves towards following Jesus. And so a movement we say saying yes does involve saying a prayer at times, right? It does just say admitting like, God, I do need you, and I need you to come into my heart. I, need, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of this. It is I believe in you. I have faith. And we do all sorts of things that kind of follow up that, that kind of confirm that, that celebrate that. Things like communion, things like baptism, things like kind of being part of this community that we call movement. But, but we say yes to Jesus first there. Step three is, is to follow, is to, is to get involved, to kind of put our faith into action, whether it be here at movement or through the week or what have you at work, where we are serving and we are being generous. And step four is to multiply that. How are we taking what we have experienced and helping other people along the way. See, the kind of life that we're after is the life that Jesus offers. It isn't the offer of a late-night infomercial. It isn't the offer of just some slick promo. It's real. I think it's available. And I think it starts to fulfill our longings for love and purpose and meaning because ultimately, heaven can start now. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And they're going to lead us in a, in a song here as we celebrate communion. As they come up, as they get...